Sunward Sky, Episode 1.10 Attack The satellite sat 10,000 kilometers from the surface of the Earth. The height it hovered at was known as Mid-Earth Orbit, and it was at this height that all the satellites of its type were located. There were 72 of them in total. Each had an incredibly accurate cesium crystal chronometer, a high bandwidth processor, and the ability to process trillions of requests each second. They orbited the Earth at a period of just over 24 hours. From any point in the Earth's surface that was exposed to the sky, at least 12 of these satellites were visible. The satellites stayed equidistant to one another at all times, excepting the usual amount of drift which was corrected by attitude and altitude adjustments via the small boosters on the sides once per month. If the scale had been such that someone could have seen it, the satellites would look like the vertices of a polyhedron, rotating twice the speed of the Earth's. Above them, in a high Earth orbit, were the geostationary satellites. Below them were the low Earth experimental satellites, manned space stations long abandoned after the glory and hope of eventual diaspora into space was abandoned. The machines in this middle layer, and those 72 in particular, were particularly important. The signals that its satellite were receiving were timestamped and fired back at the speed of light. The difference in time between the responses from each of the satellites that the device could pick up were interlaid into a series of complex equations, and from them a position could be calculated. Global positioning systems had been initially built in the 1970s, and it, along with weather, communications, and some unmanned research probes, were the only satellites that were still in regular use above the planet Earth. To effectively run a GPS unit, four satellites needed to be visible to effectively triangulate a signal. With the advent of modern transport, self-driving cars, automated delivery drones, macking programs for personal terminals, and almost every convenience of contemporary life, GPS became not a luxury but a requirement. 14 billion people made checks once per second on anything up to 10 separate devices for all of their waking hours. To ensure this continued to run as smoothly as possible, a group of large corporate conglomerates had joined together to launch DRN, Double Redundancy Network. The 72 GPS satellites were arrayed in a manner of three overlapping networks. If one satellite was destroyed or damaged, the other two could pick up the slack. Two-thirds of the network was always on, and the other was on standby to be able to pick up the slack at any point in time. The satellite in question was due for a round of maintenance. There wasn't anything wrong, and nothing caused any concern to anyone on the ground who was tasked with ensuring a smooth operation. The memory cache needed clearing. Another five months and it would start becoming a problem. It was drifting a little more than usual. It might have been accelerated a little too hard by the team that put it up there. It was running a little light on fuel. If anyone had taken a really hard look, they may have noted that its correction burns were expending between 8 and 10% more on average than had been before the previous round's maintenance. They likely wouldn't have worried too much, and just flagged a report for the next maintenance crew to review the thrusters for leaks and other inefficiencies. If they'd been worried enough to take it a step further, they would have noted that the same thing was happening on 64 of the 72 GPS satellites in mid-Earth orbit. All of them seemed to take more fuel mass to accelerate than their size was indicate. No technician had enough access to all the different satellites in orbit to notice the next part. Different companies shared as little data as possible with regard to the upkeep of their assets. 
All that was shared was the location, and that only to avoid collisions. For every active satellite that dealt with global positioning or communication, 80% of them had started reading an increase in fuel mass usage over the past 36 months. It would have taken nothing more than a high-powered telescope to understand why. If they'd looked at this satellite in particular, they would have noticed its irregular shape. Instead of a winged cylinder, it listed strangely to one side, hobbled by a crude mechanical thing. Far from the slick scarab that Isa and Alyssa had seen attach itself to the geosynchronous satellite some weeks ago, this device was gnarled wires, clips and bands of metal tied together. It had been the first one applied to any of the satellites, and it was the prototype to see if it could work. The opening move in the chess game being played by the spacefarers that referred to themselves as Project Blackout. Accelerating 5,000 kilometers above the hobbled satellite, the Sunward Sky span inward from a high Earth orbit, where Project Blackout were preparing their checkmate move. Where are we going? Alyssa asked. She hadn't moved from her chair yet, as Isa was still waking up. Healy must have been careful with the dose of the stimulant. It wouldn't do to overdo it and kill the poor girl. Considering she was still an adolescent, he'd injected less than he probably could have. He didn't answer Alyssa's question, but instead rattled the bottle of chalk white pills that they'd found in her room. These things, he said. Do they work? Alyssa was perplexed. I don't know yet. That's why I'm testing them. If I do it and they don't get the palsy, then I know it works and I can submit it for wide trials. If not... She let the comment hang in the air. They knew what happened if not. Healy seemed satisfied enough with the answer, then grunted and walked over to Isa. She was coming too, but slowly. He checked her vitals and coerced her out of the medbay seat, muttering the soft, soothing noises of someone well-practiced at bedside manner. Alyssa was fully awake and alert after whatever it was that Healy had injected her with, and swung her legs up and over to sit on the edge of her couch. Her legs dangled in the free space above the floor, and she watched Healy cooing as Isa became less and less groggy. "'What are we doing?' she demanded, and Healy turned around to her and pushed his finger to his lips. She shut up, then asked again more quietly, "'What are we doing?' "'We're waking the girl up. Come on, get your IV out, get over here, and we'll get out of here. I'll explain then.' Moving quickly, Alyssa stepped over to the other side of the room where Isa lay, and put her arm underneath the young girl's shoulder. Isa's dark face turned towards her, and she smiled groggily. Got them a bit too interested, huh? She warbled. Alyssa shushed her gently, and she and Healy hefted her under each arm and took her out of the medical bay. Where are we going? Alyssa hissed, and Healy pointed with his head to the right. They turned and headed forward for no more than a few meters when a series of footsteps rang out through the hall. Someone was coming down the corridor. The three of them darted into a door to their right, sliding it closed behind them and turning to reveal a small office, replete with a well-secured computer screen and a pair of chairs screwed into the decking. A suite of filing cabinets hung against the wall. The rest of the room was unadorned. The computer screen showed a complex system of interlinked pipes with green and red indicators, fan and ice symbols. It was the control room for the ship's air handling presumably an office for some crew member who only occasionally needed to show up. Healy propped Isa up on the chair, then turned to Alyssa. We're going to visit the captain. Why? All that stuff you've been following the last little while? The scarabs? 
holding and getting pushed into space. He stopped suddenly. Outside, the footsteps rose to what seemed like a crescendo as they passed directly outside the door. Yes? Alyssa pressed as the sound of walking faded. Right, so we've got about 15 people in the crew at the moment. I was brought on board about a year and a half ago. People up here hate the Terrans. We're stuck up here fixing their satellites so they can live a life of luxury. They don't have to manually navigate their cars, their public transport, anything. All the information they could ever want is spoon-fed into their living rooms while we get sick and die up here. Project Blackout is a way to make it so the Terrans no longer have a reason to send people up here. You've been putting these scarab things on satellites for years. What do they do? Healy paused. I'm not 100% sure on the details, to be honest. I do know a couple of things, though. Come on, let's go, he said, and poked the now far more alert Isaac to get out of the chair. They opened the facilities manager door and looked both ways down the hallway. Okay, we're not as suspicious now Eyes is walking under her own steam. We just need to hope no one from Blackout sees us. Healy said, We're going four. Captain's office is this way. The office was as four as four got. It was right next to the bridge at the front of the craft, in which three or four people would be on rotating shifts to make sure the sunward sky stayed on its course. Minor corrections were constant due to the shifting mass of the crew as they moved around. But there was not often a lot of direct intervention required by the captain outside their regular hours. In most cases, Captain Sharma could be found in the office pouring through communications between the ship and the ground, and double-checking that the crew were sure what they needed to do to keep the maintenance up to date and on time. When Healy knocked, there was a crisp, Come in, from within. The big man slid the door open and stepped briskly into the office, followed by the two women. Captain Sharma looked surprised to see the three of them forced into the cramped space. The office was larger than most of the private workspaces on the ship, but only marginally. Like the mess, it had nicer seats, timber finishes, and Sharma had set his own personal touch to the space. Pictures of two children that shared a similar subcontinental skin tone to the captain were dotted around, and the man himself was relatively well-muscled for a long-term spacefarer. His presence permeated the room in a way nobody else's on the ship did. This ship was his, and this room within it bore the stamp of a man who had long ago decided to make it his home. Healy, he seemed surprised. How may I help you, and your friends? His tone was genial, with an undercurrent of questioning and a slight impatience. Captain, this is Isa and Alyssa. Pleasure. I'm sorry, but we don't have much time for pleasantries. We have a little less than one orbit to find and stop something from happening. At this, Sharma became far less relaxed. He sat forward, and when he spoke again his tone was clipped and sharp, a relic of the almost forgotten military training he'd had as a young man. What kind of something? Talk quickly and leave nothing out. Alyssa spoke up. Before I got onto the ship, there was a delay caused by a problem with some of the cargo. I saw some people in the dock replacing some of the ship's cargo. It was being replaced by some sort of thing that connects to the satellites. We saw it happen to one of them. Healy interjected. They're called Project Blackout, Sharma. They, and I, are an organization that were trying to destabilize the satellite network. Sharma didn't react. Go on. Healy paused. Okay, for the last three years, every time there's been a ship going up for maintenance, there's been a large machine attached to the side of one of the satellites that is being maintained. They're heavy and cold welded to the exterior, so the only way to remove them is to scuttle the entire satellite. Each machine, we call them scarabs, 
as a small but powerful EMP written in such a way that will overload and rewrite the central part of the host satellite's central processor. What does the rewrite do? The captain asked. It depends on the satellite it's attached to, Healy said. GPS satellites? It changes the coefficient that accounts for gravitational drift, so the GPS signals will be contradicting each other. The communication satellites? It just fries the broadway's transmission matrix and applies a near-random hash and salt algorithm to it. Anything being received or bounced around on Terra will just be utter nonsense and it'll take months to decode if they can ever decode it. Alyssa rocked back and leaned against the wall of the office. Holy shit, she thought. This operation was far bigger than she'd ever thought it was. How many satellites has this been applied to? I'm not sure, but it's sufficient to knock out the GPS and planet-wide communication, so there's a lot. Isa looked confused, and was staring at the colour draining from the faces of the other people in the room. What is it? What's wrong? So they turn off the satellites? So what? Alyssa turned to her. It's the type of satellites, she said. Then the captain filled in. If the GPS satellites are scrambled the way our medical officer here is suggesting, then everything on the planet that relies on GPS navigation will go haywire. Almost all of our cars are now self-driving. All of our food and waste collection and transport is self-driving. Not to mention aircraft and seacraft. Spacecraft need to use a different positioning system as they're up too high. So they're fine, but... Everything else... He let it hang in the air. Everything will crash? Eyes oppressed. Still not quite understanding. Yeah, Isa. Everything will crash, Alyssa clarified. Anything that is reliant on GPS to tell where it is, which is nearly everything, will go haywire and not know where it is. That's only half of it, Healy said. The other half is the communication satellites. No one will be able to talk to one another over anything but shortwave radio or wired connections, which almost nobody uses these days. The captain gave a low whistle. So nobody on the Earth would be able to... Jesus. That's why it's called Project Blackout, Healy said. Nobody can get anywhere, and nobody will be able to find out what's going on, because their method of communication between their, beyond their local cell phone range will be down. The four of them stood in silence for a moment, and considered the enormity of what was going to happen if Project Blackout succeeded. It was Alyssa who snapped out of it first. Okay, so... What do we know? Healy, do you know how it's going to be triggered? Yes and no, the tall man said. I do know that it's a proximity trigger. We couldn't risk too much of a power drain from the ship's main power. Anything more than a half a percent or so and there was a risk it would get noticed. Plus, it needed to be in line of sight to the original station. Let me guess, Sharma interjected. Our final satellite for this trip is the original? Healy nodded. It's had a scatter with the control structure for all the others on it for three years now. Great. What I don't know is how it's getting triggered. There have to be some sort of radio instruction being sent to it. Sharma leaned back in his seat and thought for a moment. The air was thick with tension, and the four of them could feel time slipping away from them. Alyssa considered Healy for a moment. Why had he changed his mind about this? He'd been involved with Project Blackout. They'd brought him in when they discovered that the two girls had known about the plan, and the two of them had been drugged and held captive by the man. So why the change of heart? He seemed inscrutable, and his candid nature with the captain betrayed no sorrow or apology for the conspiracy that was mere hours for being perpetrated. The captain stood and pulled Alyssa from her thoughts. 
If it's something being sent from our comrade, it'd have to be in the bridge. With that, he stepped out of the room and back into the hall. They all followed and moved next door to the bridge of Sunward Sky. There were three people in the room, two women and one man, and they pushed themselves back from the workstations with the gimbaled seats they sat in. Alyssa, Isa, these are the three of the twelve NAV crew members. Meg, Nicola, and Mitchell. We need to talk them through what's going on, and then we need to figure out where this signal is coming from. These three are trying to get to the bottom of a mission-critical problem. You're to provide any necessary resources to assist. How long do we have until we rendezvous with the next satellite? One of the women, Meg, who seemed to be in charge of the other two, spun in the couch quickly and checked her instruments. Um, GPS sat 1185 will be on approach in 48 minutes, she said. Any way of slowing that down? Sharma asked. Not really, Meg said. Our speed is pretty well fixed by the speed of orbit. We're in, de in a declining orbit to meet it at the moment, and we'd have to burn a lot of fuel to significantly change our trajectory. Sharma rubbed his chin. The crew, along with Alyssa and Isa, stood looking at him as he decided what to do. Okay, I'm going to search other parts of the ship for anything that looks suspicious. Isa, you're coming with me. Healy, Alyssa, work with these three. I want to find that thing before it screws us all. With that, he turned sharply on his heel and stepped out into the corridor. Isa hustled to follow him, and the five left in the bridge were left staring at each other. Quickly, Alyssa went over the details of what it was they were looking for, and the broad strokes of what Project Blackout was trying to do. The three navigation techs looked horrified, then turned to each other and started talking about the options for where such a trigger might be stored. Within a couple of minutes, they turned back to Alyssa and Healy. We need to check every way here. Make sure there's not a physical connection that's been plugged into the nav computer. If it's not something physical, we're going to need to check the subroutines on the communications computer, and we're going to have to do it quickly. Meg sent to them. For the next five minutes, the crew scrambled around the desks and access terminals in the space. There were four workstations, each with a display screen set into a folded metal cabinet that sat on the floor near the gimbaled couches. Each of these couches were on a floor and ceiling rail mount and could be pushed back away from the controls and locked there. The access panels slid away easily and exposed a mess of wiring and printed circuit boards that served as the processing and controls for the terminals. It was archaic, though the setup was probably to allow the easy replacement of any faulty parts in the terminals. Alyssa, being almost two feet shorter than Healy, managed to squeeze underneath one of the terminals and carefully flick through each of the sets of wiring. She was looking for anything that looked jerry-rigged, something that didn't seem to fit the specification of the rest of the computer. She found nothing. She crawled back out into the space with the rest of the nav crew, who had finished their search far faster. She shook her head, and Meg immediately leapt into action. Alright, if it's not a physical bug, it's something written into the communications code. Let me pull it up. Her fingers flashed over the console until she found the code repository for the navigation. Is there a recent pull request? Mitchell offered. A recent upload to the server? Maybe we could find it there. Meg replied, were it so easy. The repository is uploaded in full prior to takeoff. Any edits made can be done externally without any of us knowing that it happened. If we want to find it, we're just going to have to look through the code. She pushed a series of buttons, then flicked her hands three times. There we are. We've got roughly a quarter of the code base each. Work through it on your monitors. Alyssa and Healy looked at the empty screen they'd been searching under until recently. 
The time in the corner said there was only about 30 minutes until the satellite was in line of sight. That'd have to be very fast. Alyssa's coding ability was okay but not excellent, and there was about 5,000 lines of code to get through. It didn't look good. Still, Healy and herself minimized all the subroutines as they flew into place onto her monitor. Slowly and deliberately, they began working through them. Most of them had a small text note at the top describing their purpose, and verifying them was fairly easy. Others, not so much. They filtered each subroutine and whispered quietly to each other, explaining code snippets that the others didn't understand. The situation seemed hopeless. There was just too much to get through and not enough time. After a short while, Alyssa turned to Healy. Why'd you wake me up? Healy still hid his head in the code and it took him a moment to process the statement. What? Oh, it was just... You're doing it right, and I realized that. What do you mean? Alyssa closed the subroutine down and pushed the small plus icon on the next one and began to read through the nest of variables and instructions. Healy sighed and stretched. His long limbs managed to touch the ceiling of the room as he stood up and the carabiners on his belt clinked loudly. What I mean is, I don't hate the Terrans. I'm not like some of the crew on Blackout. Some people absolutely hate everyone down the gravity well. But you don't. Nothing in this routine either, she thought, and opened the next one. No, I don't hate people for their comforts, and I'm too old to be a revolutionary. And besides, my palsy is too far gone for anything I do now to be of any help. No, I just didn't want anyone to have to go through the palsy. Do you know how hard it is to go down to the planet you were born on and know your nerves are too degraded to ever live there again? Alyssa couldn't imagine. She turned to him and whispered, I'm sorry. I know you are. He paused. I'm trying to help you now because if you can get this medicine of yours working, maybe traveling in space can become the adventure it was always supposed to be. And maybe nobody has to go through what I've gone through again. Maybe you can have your home world and you can have your space flight. Because being up here, he looked at the window to the immensity of the starfield is almost worth the palsy, but not quite. Alyssa closed the subroutine she'd been looking at and turned to Healy. He had a wistful look in his eye, and his immense form was filled with the boyish wonder as he stared out into the void. She was about to open her mouth when the door to the nav room burst open and the captain was dragged in. There was a needle held to his neck and Clark was holding it. He was enraged and pointed at Healy. You! You couldn't keep your mouth shut, could you? He pressed the needle further into the neck of the captain, who looked in shock. We're so close. We were so close to getting what we want, and the medic has to stuff everything up. What's the matter? Can't deal with people dying on your shift? Settle down, Clark, Alyssa said. Shut up, you fucking Terran, Clark spat. I'll stick our captain here so full of chemicals. The navigation crew were stood in their backs to the terminals, the search through the subroutines forgotten. Clark was wide-eyed and furious, and nobody wanted to approach him in the small space. I found him, hmm? I found him that skinny little black Terran on their way to the main airlock. I dealt with her, then I had to make sure he didn't know too much. What did you do, Healy? You told him everything. Venom dripped from every word. Near him, Mitchell was trying to slowly edge into a better position, 
so that he could maybe grab onto the captain and whisk him away from the man in the corner. How hard have we worked? We were so close to getting the Terrans to pay, and you've ruined it. Mitchell pushed closer, locking his knee next to the corner of the crash couch. When he moved next, his shoe scraped on the floor and drew Clark's attention. Don't even think about it, boy, Clark said, but Alyssa could see his hands were shaking. Was he scared? She spoke. Clark, come on. We're not trying to do anything. You've got us. We didn't find the activation subroutine in the code, but you can help us. We don't need to do this. Think of how many people we can stop from having to go through all this trauma if you just help us. The shaking stopped. His eyes, filled with rage, bored into Alyssa's. She'd never seen such unmasked hatred from another human before. He stared and seemed to make a decision. I'm never going to help another Terran as long as I live. With that, he pushed the syringe into Sharma's neck. Mitchell leapt from behind the seat and sprinted towards Clark. Alyssa shouted and ran forward to catch Sharma, who had started convulsing as he drifted slowly to the floor of the navigation centre. Megan Nicola moved to assist Mitchell, who was trying to avoid the now empty syringe, as Clark waved it like a dagger towards his attacker. The three of them managed to tackle him to the floor, but he wasn't giving up the fight. Alyssa got to Sharma as he hit the ground. She watched as his eyes glazed over, and he shuddered as whatever had been in the syringe worked its way through his system. He struggled to sit up, to look more fully at Alyssa, and when he recognised her, he struggled to say something. Isa! Airlock! She's trapped in there! Which airlock? Alyssa demanded. Tell me! Aft! Cargo! With that, he vomited bile, and his eyes went blank. Alyssa dropped him and turned back to the scene. Healy was over by the computer terminal, frantically working his hands over the screen and touchpads. The three nav controllers were trying to deal with Clark, but with limited success. The needle was now filled with air, and they were carefully avoiding the arm that was holding it. Alyssa noticed that they'd turned him around such that he was facing the window. He had his back to her. Without thinking, Alyssa launched herself into the fray. Clark seemed surprised and tried to twist himself around, but Alyssa had the element of surprise. She grabbed the thin man by the wrist and began pushing it toward his body, angling the needle towards him. He cried out and swore and let go of the needle. Alyssa grabbed it before it could float down to the deck, and she pushed the point towards the man's chest. With eyes black as coal and burning hatred, he grabbed at her and stopped her arm moving mere millimetres above his ribcage. Alyssa grunted and tried to push down, but she couldn't force her weight into the thrust with such low gravity. Suddenly, the world around her shifted, and the gravity of the ship seemed to increase, skewing her one way more than the other. Both she and Clark were caught off guard, and the syringe moved chaotically and nearly broke off as it collided with the floor. Before she could react, a press of multiple bodies was thrown onto her back. The three navigation specialists grabbed her arm and pushed it down. Clark cried out and pushed with all his strength, but the needle moved inexorably inward. Finally, it penetrated his skin and slipped between two of his ribs. Meg freed one of her hands and pushed the plunger, injecting nothing but air into the man's bloodstream. It took a moment, but the air travelled through him and into his heart. He stuttered, and then began to suffocate. The three of them held on as he quivered and died in their arms. Exhausted, the four of them rolled off each other. The captain lay dead next to them, as did Clark.
The door to the bridge was closed. Nobody had seen it, but they would have to do something with the bodies. Oh god, Alyssa said as she sat up. She started shaking, realizing what she'd done. Don't think about it, Meg said. We need to get back to the subroutines. We only have a couple of minutes to find that communications array. Don't worry about that for right now, Healy said. I came up with something. The satellite lay in wait for the sunward sky to slow down its orbit brought it within a few scant kilometres. It had been waiting for three long years to receive a small packet of information, barely above Hello World in its complexity, to trigger a system scramble. In this scramble, it would beam a similar instruction to the next satellite, and the next, and the next, and all down the chain, until Project Blackout had destroyed the ability for humanity to rely on space-based communication. It couldn't see, but if it could, it would have noticed that 5,000 kilometers away, all the main lights on the sunward sky suddenly turned off. The crew were sent to their quarters, or advised to sign something to attach themselves to, so they could withstand the force of an impact. Once everyone made it to their crash lounges, even the emergency infrared lighting was turned off. The entirety of the ship's systems were powered down, except for the backup emergency radio which was held on a discrete analog network. Fifteen minutes went by and the spaceship hurtled through space, a ballistic missile sent unguided through the universe. Its orbit had been declined more than it should have, and it wasn't going to pass within kilometres of the satellite with its hulking scarab crouched over it. Inside the spaceship, the satellite loomed large through the window on the bridge, and Mitchell manned the emergency comm, starting a countdown. Ten. Alyssa tightened her grip on the gimbaled couch, determined not to make the same mistake she'd made on liftoff. Nine. Healy was in the back of the medbay, hunkered down after hauling the two dead bodies into the emergency couch. Eight. Isa was strapped into an emergency spacesuit and hiding in the airlock as she'd been locked into by Clark. Seven. The other members of Project Blackout were in their quarters, having realised they didn't have time to storm the bridge. Six. Elise noticed the sound difference in the intercom and realised what the navigation crew had done. Five. By turning off the ship's systems and using only the internal intercom, the code that she'd so carefully planted into the subroutines would never run within the short-range signal that the satellite could pick up. Four. Something clicked for Alyssa. Three. The shift in gravity she'd felt when she'd been fighting Clark had been healing, realigning the sunward sky's orbit. Two. They weren't going to spin past the satellite and have it not be activated because the ship's cons were turned off. One. She stared out the window, and a looming blackness, a ceramic and chrome mass rushed at the centre of the sunward sky, its hulking form silhouetted against the roiling mass of Earth's clouds. God, it's moving fast, she thought. The sunward sky was travelling at nearly 20,000 kilometres an hour, a full 5,000 kilometres an hour faster than the GPS satellite when it impacted in the dead centre of the ship's main column. The satellite and the scarab attached to it were rent apart and shattered into a wave of screaming metal, glass, solar cells and ceramic. The nose cone and central column on the spaceship were crumpled in almost a third of the ship's length and the walls, designed for so much resilience in the air forces and resistance experienced at launch time, tore like butcher's paper. The deceleration on board threw each and every crew member into their harnesses, 
cracking ribs and clavicles and popping lungs. Anything not locked down became a missile, with small objects like glass containers and pill bottles punching through the steel bulkheads and crushing the insulation on the other side. Oxygen and propellant gases blew out the side of the spacecraft at on angles where the satellite had punctured the tanks, flinging the enormous tonnage of the vessel into a vertiginous spin. The tanks emptied, and the sunward sky careened through space, in a slowly decaying orbit, with all hands on board either unconscious, maimed, or dead. On Terra, a distress signal was lodged for a GPS satellite. It had just stopped responding. The technician forwarded the signal to his manager. One lost satellite wasn't a huge cause for concern. There was another round of maintenance due before too long. She pressed a button, and the backup satellite came online. Nobody on Earth, except for her, noticed the change. <laughs>